Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks that uh, we are in a country where that we can openly and freely open up your word and, uh, and we can hear from your word. We give thanks for the book of Colossians and the messages and the teachings that you have for us. Father, I pray that you will soften our hearts, that your spirit will lead us, <clears throat> and that your spirit will uh, help us to understand and uh, teach us through your words today and through the words of Brian. In your name we pray. Amen. So beginning Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. This is the word of the Lord. On behalf of Ingrid, myself, and also Ingrid's mother-in-law, Ria, it's been really delightful to come into the community and be welcomed so well by so many people. So thank you very much for your warm welcome over these last few months. It's been lovely to get to know some of you, and I hope over the coming months and years we'll get to know a lot more of you. Well, let's open with a, a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, your word is truth. And we pray now as we dig into it, you'd help us understand it, uh, fill us with your spirit that we might know Christ a little better and love him more dearly. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, let me ask with, uh, start with that rhetorical question. Uh, what is it that fires you up? Uh, what is it that motivates you? What are you passionate about? Now, we can get excited by, by many things, can't we, in, in God's good world? There are lots of things to, be, to enjoy and get excited about. For myself right now, I'm very excited about moving into our new house. It's happening this coming week uh, after many, many long delays, so I'm really excited by that. I'm also always excited to see my family, so in a couple of weeks we'll be heading to Tassie and at the end of the year 
they'll be heading back here to spend some time with us. And I get excited watching the footy, especially when my team, Port Adelaide, wins. Now, I know that's a problem because half the state barracks for the other side, but <laughs> nevertheless. Bushwalking, cycling, gardening are all things that Ingrid and I are both passionate about. What about you? What are, what are you passionate about? Perhaps it's travel or your work or a hobby, maybe even extreme sports. If you're an accountant, you might be really excited by a really nice spreadsheet. A farmer would be passionate about his flourishing crop. It's different things for different people, isn't it? We can be excited by many things in God's good world. And as Christians, since we've come to know Christ, one thing we're all excited about is the ministry of the gospel, aren't we? The spread of the gospel, seeing people saved and grow in their faith. And here in these verses, Paul describes his ministry experience and his passion for the gospel certainly comes out, doesn't it? Notice the things he says about it here. It's so personal, isn't it? He rejoices in it, even in his suffering for it. He works hard with all God's energy to tell all people everywhere about Christ. He wants everyone, even those who haven't met him, to know Christ in whom, he says, are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The text overflows with Paul's energy and passion for gospel ministry. Now, we're not the Apostle Paul. He was uniquely called, wasn't he, to bring the gospel beyond the confines of Israel to non-Jews, to Gentiles. But we serve the same Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? And he still has the same agenda. He still has this, the same agenda for his people, for the church and for the world. And the call of the gospel, the call to follow Jesus, is the call to ministry, isn't it? It's a call to serve Christ in his great mission to save a people for himself. But why does Paul now tell the Colossians about his ministry experience in these verses here? Well, we'd have to pick up on the context a bit first. So far in the letter, Paul's talked about the unstoppable gospel that's spreading all over the world, bearing fruit all over the world, and that has come to the Colossians through this man Epaphras, Paul's fellow worker. And he thanks God for the Colossians' faith, hope and love, and he prays for them to have greater wisdom and spiritual understanding so they may know God's will for their lives. And then he lifts up a huge, a massive Jesus who is much, much bigger than we know or think, who is utterly supreme over creation, over the church, in redemption. And he urges the Colossians to continue to trust Jesus and not let their faith drift from him. And now in these verses, Paul is going to address the pressures and the stresses the Colossians are facing as a church. There were false teachers coming into the church who were actually derailing the church's focus from Jesus. And so before he addresses the concerns, and we'll see that as we get into chapter 2 a little more in the coming weeks, he shares something of his ministry experiences, commending himself and his ministry as genuine so that he might earn the right to be heard. So let's have a look at these verses now then and see what we can learn here about the nature of Paul's ministry and, by extension, ours. The first thing we see here is that Paul serves the church with the word of God. 
Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. Paul sees himself as a servant of the church. And what is he serving? Well, he's serving the word of God in all its fullness. Why? Because it's the word of God that forms and sustains and equips the church. The church grows by the servants of the church spending long hours studying, looking into, labouring over the word of God in order to bring it faithfully to the people. And I must say, what a blessing it is to have faithful leaders in Duncan and Steve and others here at Trinity, Victor, who serve us, bring the word of God to us on Sundays in small groups and pastorally as well. It's a real blessing. And notice what the word of God is all about. It's all about the mystery revealed in Christ, says the Apostle Paul. See, the Colossians were living in a, a world of mysteries and mystery religions. And some of the leaders are saying, were saying, uh, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need this experience, this rule, this ritual. And they were saying, I can give this to you. I'm the one who has the secret. And if you follow me and my ways, you'll have it too. Yes, you need Jesus, but you also need this. Sound familiar? Still what we hear today in parts of the wider church, isn't it? It's Jesus plus. And the Apostle Paul, right through all his writings, says Jesus plus is nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so he tells us in verses 26 to 27, yes, there's a mystery. It's been hidden in ages past. But now it's been disclosed to the Lord's people. It's not just for Jews. It's for everyone, Gentile, Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. And now every saint from every nation, tribe and tongue knows this glorious mystery. And what is it? It's Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's nothing more than Christ. He's the saviour. He's the risen Lord. He alone is our hope of a new life and glory in the world to come. I'm a servant of the church, says the Apostle Paul, serving up the word of God so that people everywhere across the world might come to know Christ, the saviour of the world. And notice for Paul, serving the church in this way, presenting an exclusive Christ to the world, entails suffering. Paul lived in a pretty battered body, didn't he? Read 2 Corinthians 11. He was flogged. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He was a battered old man. man. And now in prison, look again at verse 24, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, which is the church. Is this guy real? Why does he speak like this? Who rejoices in suffering? And yet that's what he says. And the rest of the Bible speaks in very much the same way. Peter, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4.13 says, But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. 
And then in Acts 5.41, the apostles were persecuted and thrown into prison and met with the Sanhedrin who threatened them. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin, it says, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Paul is consistent with the other apostles in having this joy in suffering in ministry. And that ought to make us sit up and think. There must be something deeper going on here. Why does Paul rejoice in suffering? Well, for two very good reasons. First, it brings good to the church. Look at verse 24 again. It says, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, he writes to the Colossians, for the Colossian church. And at the end of the verse, for the sake of his body, which is the church. What's he talking about? He's saying, I really suffered for you so that you'd keep hearing the word of God. And I rejoice in that because that is how the church was planted. That's how it grows. And all over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and the church is built. And I rejoice in that. But suffering is also good for our souls, isn't it? See what Paul says in verse 24? I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now, what does that mean? It's one of the most hotly debated texts in the, in the scriptures. And I don't have, to, have, don't have time to go through all the different interpretations this morning. But Paul can't possibly be saying what Christ did on the cross was not sufficient. We need to complete it with our efforts. He can't possibly be saying that. Because he told us in, just earlier in the chapter that Christ is a sufficient saviour. Sufficient to reconcile us to God. Sufficient to present us holy and spotless. Christ's death on the cross, cross is a perfect work of salvation. As he himself said, it is finished, it's done, it's completed. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that there's a very close identification between Jesus and Christians who suffer in gospel ministry and mission. Christ identifies with us in our suffering for his sake as we join him in his mission. He suffered to begin the spread of the gospel and Paul fills up that suffering as he continues to spread the gospel. And so do all who join God in his mission. And Jesus, as head of the body, as it says there in the text, the church, as head of that body, the church suffers whenever his body suffers. And you know, today all around the world, the church suffers for Jesus' sake as it testifies to Christ and, the Lord, and his lordship. Just think of the church in, in uh, Manipur, India, this year. Hundreds of Christians beaten, 120 killed, 1,000 homes destroyed, 400 churches destroyed, 50,000 Christians displaced. And then who can forget the images of the 21 Christians in 2015 in orange, lined up in orange jumpsuits on the beach in Libya and beheaded? Or the school in Nigeria in which 50 children were burned to death because they were Christians. How, how does Jesus feel when he sees Christians beaten and tortured and burned to death for their faith? He suffers. The head suffers. That's what Paul's saying, and he knows it firsthand. Remember, before his conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul was persecuting the church, and Jesus met him and said, why are you persecuting me? Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus, was he? He was persecuting the church, Christians. But Christ identifies so closely 
with his people, that what happens to his followers happens to him. Their suffering is his suffering because they belong to him. And friends, if we're serious about gospel growth, if we're serious about serving Christ in ministry or mission, if we're committed to his mission to build the church, it will cost us. There will be sacrifice, and some of us may even be called to suffer. But here's the thing. It strengthens your bond with your Lord. It unites you more closely to Christ. And that's good for our souls. That's why Paul rejoices in it, and so can we. Helen Rosevere was a missionary in the Congo from 1953 to 1973, serving as a doctor and sort of building hospitals. But in 1964, in the middle of that time, there was a revolution that overwhelmed the country and Helen was imprisoned and for five months she was tortured. And on one occasion she was about to be put to death by the rebels when a 17-year-old boy, a young convert, stood between Helen and her executioners. And the men turned on this young boy and clubbed him to death in front of her. She said it was the worst day of her life. She was devastated. She felt sick. She felt God had abandoned her. She was utterly broken by it. And then she felt God's presence very clearly. And this is what she felt Jesus was saying to her. 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege to be a missionary. The privilege of being identified with me. These are not your sufferings. These are my sufferings. And she realised that there, there's this close identification as she suffers for the gospel, Jesus suffers too. And she became aware again of God's powerful, unchanging love and forgiveness and peace. So that's the first thing we see here. We see that Paul serves the church with the word of God. And secondly, he works hard to present everyone mature in Christ. That's the second thing we see about Paul's ministry. Look at verses 28 and 29. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all his energy, Christ so powerfully works in me. Now, these words, strenuously contend, carry the ideas of laboring, of toiling, of striving and struggling. That's the idea. It's a picture of of those men you see on 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 the pavement, the sidewalk, big men, sweaty men with big rippling muscles thumping away at the concrete, digging it up. That's the picture you have here. And that's what... We are as ministers, says the Apostle Paul. We work hard. We labour. We struggle. Not physically. Most of us ministers are pretty soft, I think, in that department. We know very little about physical, hard physical labour. But we do work hard. We labour. We struggle to understand, to put together, to deliver God's word faithfully. It's hard work for preachers to understand the roots, the context, the words, how it fits together, the glory of the passage. It's a struggle, it's hard work, but the joy is we proclaim him. We proclaim Christ, the invisible, the the image of the invisible God, the maker and sustainer and heir of all creation. The redeemer who reconciles us to God by his sacrificial death on the cross. What a privilege and joy it is to tell 
others about our great and kind Lord Jesus Christ. But let me broaden it out because this is true for all gospel ministry. It's good that some people are paid and of course we expect them to labour and struggle with all the energy God provides. But every member of the church is a minister too, isn't it? Isn't that right? We all have something to contribute, don't we? Whatever it is, whether it's leading a Bible study group, doing a pastoral visit, just simply discipling, encouraging somebody, organising service on Sunday, running the kids' program, serving coffee, coffee, praying for the church, praying for the church around the world. Don't be surprised if it's hard work and a struggle. The other day I was sort of watching a, uh, a program on the pyramids of Egypt and how they were built. You know, each one of those pyramids took... 15 to 30 years of hard labour, thousands of workers, most of them slaves, of course, quarried and moved and placed approximately 2.3 million stones. These were big rock stones. Incredibly hard work. And what was it for? All for the glory of a dead pharaoh. And what about us and our living Lord? Sure, we're not all called to be preachers, but we all have something to contribute. And whatever it is, don't be surprised that it requires toil and sacrifice. And this is not something you do in a, in a uh, moment of fantastic decision, in a great burst of enthusiasm and devotion, is it? It's going to require a daily commitment. Every day you're going to have to sort of deny yourself. Every day you're going to have to die to your own ambitions. It's always today, isn't it? Are you loving the kingdom more than anything else in the world today? Are you serving Christ as the highest calling on your life today? We need to make decisions every day as we go. Decisions to deny some immediate pleasure to persevere in visiting and encouraging that brother or sister to organise and teach in the kids' ministry to to go the extra mile at music practice, to be constant in prayer and giving and attending and serving. And notice we do it with the strength Christ gives. It's, with, it's all his energy which so powerfully works in me. And in verse 28, we see why Paul works so hard. Look at the words. So that we might present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's Paul's ultimate aim. It's not just to see people saved. He, he, he wasn't into, I'll save them and you raise them up. No, he wanted to get them all, not just over the line, but as in good a shape as possible. He wants to see it through. He works with all the energy God gives him, preaching, teaching, warning, correcting, so that when Christ returns, he's able to present everyone he dealt with as complete and mature in Christ as possible. That's how he loves them and cares for them. He didn't avoid the difficult issues. At times he lovingly laid it on the line. That's admonishing, isn't it? Come on, let's grow up. Let's leave that behind. Let's draw near to Christ, press into him. And if we want to grow to maturity in Christ, as individuals and as a church community, it will require hard work, not just by some of us, not just by Duncan and the leadership team, but by each one of us, as God has gifted and resourced us. And it's so encouraging to come into this community over the last few months and see so many of you doing just that in this church. The third thing we learn about Paul's ministry is that he wants to see Christ formed in others. 
His long-term goal is there in verse 28 to present everyone mature in Christ. But notice the immediate goal in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. Have a look at the words there. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How is Paul contending for these Colossians? He's in prison. He can't visit them, he can't be with them, but he can wrestle in prayer for them, can't he? That's Paul's heart. He's never been to the Colossian church. He didn't know the place or the people, but he heard of their faith in Christ through Epaphras, his fellow worker. And that was enough for Paul to regard them as his dear spiritual children. And so he wrestled in prayer for them. And that's the kind of heart we are to have as well, a heart that struggles and wrestles in prayer for our fellow believers. doesn't matter if you're a plumber or a pastor. We can all pray. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old. We can all pray. How wonderful it is that we can pray for people that we might not even know very well. And what is it that Paul prays for them? Firstly, that they would be encouraged in heart. Now, the word encourage here isn't just sort of putting an arm around someone and saying they're there. It also means to implore, to spur someone on. It's encouraging others to press into Christ, to get into the truth, to get into the meat of God's word, to grow in your understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for you. Yes, you're a sinner, but look at what he's done for you. He died for all your sins, every last one, and you can do nothing for your salvation. He's done everything. And now you're a child of God. Live for him. Love him. Adore him. It's an encouragement to live for Christ, to go for Christ, to use your gifts to serve him. And Paul also prays for them to be united in love. And disunity is a real danger in the church in Colossae. It pushes people into a camp mentality, doesn't it? It splits people into groups. Jesus plus what we think, Jesus and the group that we're in. Paul says, we're not in this for individual glory. We're united in our life, love for Christ, and we're united in love for each other, serving the Lord together. And Paul prays for the health of these Colossian Christians. He prays for their health as a church. And the key to that is very, very simple. He wants them to know Christ. That's his immediate goal. The long-term goal is to be mature, present them mature in Christ. But the immediate goal is to know Christ, to have complete understanding of Christ. Because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found in him. Two weeks before C.S. Lewis died, a young girl wrote him a letter. And he wrote back to this little girl and said this, Dear Ruth, Many thanks for your letter. It was, a very good, it was very good of you to write and tell me that you liked my books. It's a very good letter you wrote for your age. And then he says this, If you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you, and I hope you may always do so. That's right, isn't it? If we continue to know and love Christ... Nothing much will go wrong with our lives. Our understanding of Christ is everything. If you believe and know and love the Christ of the Bible, 
If you believe in this great, powerful, eternal Christ who never had a beginning or an end, who is the creator of everything, all the textures, all the colours, all the tones, everything that dazzles, if you believe in the Christ who holds all things in his powerful hand and holds everything together to keep it all in balance so that it doesn't all fly apart, if you believe in Christ who died for sin of the world and for your sin and my sin, who reconciles you to almighty God and gives you eternal life. If you believe in him, what can go wrong in your life? Despite the difficulties you may face, you're okay. You're in Christ. And Paul struggles in prayer for the Colossians that they may have a vision of Christ like that. How do we get such an understanding of Christ? And this is really important. It's there in verse 2. As we love one another, as we're united in love. Intellectual comprehension is not enough. To know about Christ is not enough. You need to experience his love in Christian community. And the thing is this. You can't really understand Christ fully without being united in love, struggling and serving and suffering with your brothers and sisters. You can't really fully understand Christ as a lone, isolated Christian. The way you understand Christ is to struggle together in community, learning to forgive, learning to love, seeing Christ in each other. See, when you are loved by other Christians, we see Christ in them, and our knowledge of Christ is expanded. And when we love others with the love of Christ, he works in and through us, and we get to know him better, and our knowledge of him is expanded. See that? This unity in love is the way into the deeper understanding of Christ and all those treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, Paul struggles in prayer for these Colossians that they might have this understanding and be equipped to resist false teaching. See what he tells them in verse 4? I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And we'll see more about that in the next few weeks. The struggle against error is still very real for the church today, isn't it? The history of Christianity is littered with heresies, subtle perversions of the truth, all seeking to distract us from Christ and rob us of the treasures that we have, of wisdom and knowledge that we have in him. And friends, if we work hard to understand and grow in the truth of God's word and we're knit together in love as a community, we will, by God's grace, resist heresy and the knowledge of Christ and the love in the body will protect us and hold us. John Stott, the famous pastor of all souls, he said, if you're, if you're looking for the church, there's two things you should, you should look for. One, are they submitted to the word of God? And secondly, do they love one another? Pretty simple, isn't it? Let me finish. What is Christian ministry like? What can we expect if we sign up to serve in a ministry or mission? You know, one mission organisation adv advertised their mission and, and by using these words. Become a missionary, even for a short time, because it's exciting and you'll get a lot out of it and you may even find a husband or wife. <laughs> well, is that true? Is that true? Well, the marvellous thing is that it is true. It has happened. Maybe it's even happened to some of you. But it's a byproduct, isn't it? Not that you want to say that to your spouse. 
In God's goodness, as we serve in some ministry, God in his kindness gives us many good things, possibly even a husband or wife. But that's not the focus. Paul tells us that actually ministry is hard work and a struggle and wrestling in prayer and at times suffering. Remember Paul's invitation to Timothy and all who would serve the Lord Jesus Christ in any ministry. He says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's press into being servants of the Lord and his church so that the word of God, the word, the wonderful word, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ goes out to those who need to hear it. Yes, it'll be hard work. Yes, it'll be a struggle. But God will give us the energy. That's the promise. And the joy is we will see Christ formed more and more in ourselves and in others. And where is our focus? It's on him. Where are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge to be found? In him. And where do we find our deepest joy and the hope of glory? In him. Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sure hope that we have in the gospel and for all that we've received in Christ. Forgiveness of our sins, adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High God an inheritance that never perish, spoil or fade. May our focus never be distracted from him. Instead, help us press into understanding and knowing more of him and what he did to save us. Father, help us every day to be faithful in serving Christ and his mission in whatever he calls us to. And fill us with your Holy Spirit so that no matter how difficult our service might always be wholehearted and joyful, reflecting your great love for us. For your kingdom and glory's sake we pray. Amen.